Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Yo! Everybody, how's it going this morning? Welcome to CBC. If we haven't met, my name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here. If you want to get to know me more or say hi or tell me all the things I can do better, I hang out right there after the service. I would love to meet you. Today, after the service, real quick, we have a lead meeting. You've probably heard about it. Leaders at CBC are anybody that serves at CBC. It's designed to be a quick-hitting half hour where we update everybody on a couple things, where we kind of vision cast a little bit, and where we pray together, because that's one of the best things we can do. It's just a galvanizing moment saying, let's keep going. God is good. So join us. I've been told to tell you this. Go pick up your kids first, all right? (laughs) Just so I can say that and get that out there, and then come on back, and we'll have a good time together. Uh, this morning, before we dive into scriptures, we make it pretty, uh, pretty straightforward around here that the Bible, that what we study this morning isn't just information for us, but transformation for us. The Holy Spirit's going to do something. And we live in a critical culture because we're prideful and insecure at the same time. We try to take those things out on other people by criticizing over asking what God is doing. And so this morning, we start with the phrase that we say often. And one of these times, I'm going to actually quiz you on it and make you say it to me. Today is not that day, but we say things like the spirit moves inward to conviction, not outward to critique. And what we mean by that is that this morning, God is here. And because we open up the scriptures and gather together with other like-minded people that worship God, he's going to change us if we let him. If we listen, if we hear, if we humbly come before God and say, how can I change what I'm doing to look more like Jesus? That's why we're here together. And so we just take a minute right here, right now and pray acknowledge that God is near and ask the Holy Spirit to be loud so that we might hear this morning. So pray with me. God, I'm thankful that with the busyness and the chaosness of of, of our world that we can come here and just take an hour or so and recognize that you should be at the center, that you're worthy of stopping down for. Might we position ourselves in a posture of humility and, and service and supplication and praise to somebody who should be at the center of all of our things. So Holy Spirit, this morning as we open your scripture, it's our prayer every time we do, that you might tug at our spirits, at our souls. You might convict where conviction is necessary, encourage where encourage is necessary, and give us peace and joy about the goodness of God. And might we see it more greatly today when we leave than when we showed up. So Spirit, meet us this morning. If you're comfortable, just Take a few seconds and say a prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to meet you this morning, speak to you this morning, show you more of God's goodness this morning through our text. Let's you pray for me that the Holy Spirit might use the preparation and our time together to do a work that only he can do. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, I'm going to admit something to you people right now that I have not admitted to many people in my lifetime. I am stubborn. (laughs) Um, When you laugh, I feel like you saw that coming. Uh, 
No, I remember specifically there was a time growing up. So I, you know, was decent at writing growing up. I went to a Bible college that was very, like kind of a liberal arts Bible college. And by that, I just mean lots of writing. Every class had two or three five-page papers and about a 15-page paper. It was writing for because it's a fine arts college. And they knew if they're going to shape pastors, you're going to have to teach them how to communicate. And I was 19 and a half, I want to say, young enough to count half ages. I was 19 and a half when I realized that I've been doing something wrong my entire life. For my entire life, I thought that the word so was like the word to. So you know when you have too many of something, it's T-O-O? I thought when something was so great, it was S-O-O. And I wrote that on all my papers. I literally remember getting papers back from my English professors in college that would correct it. And I would say in my head, how do they get to that job not knowing this grammatical rule? <laughs> really? And then I remember having a conversation with one of my friends on AAM chat. Yes, I'm old. I'm having a conversation with them when I'm in college and I used it. And she said, you know, that's not true, right? And I said, you are wrong. And then for, I had a moment of clarity, we'll call it a miracle, where... I wasn't stubborn, and I realized for years and years and years, I'd been doing this wrong, and, and for years and years and years, I'd missed what was actually right. There's a quote, uh, like by Leo Tolstoy, he says, the most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he's not formed any idea of them already, but the simplest thing cannot be made clear to the most intelligent man if he's firmly persuaded that he knows already, without a shadow of a doubt, what is laid before him couple things pick up there. Yes, I called myself an intelligent man, all right? But, but moreover, I think we have this ability sometimes to not see what's actually happening because we can't break through the wall of our expectation. You guys know the story of the person sitting on their roof when the water's rising and they say, God save me, God save me. You know where I'm going? And God sends like a boat. No, I'm waiting for God. God sends a helicopter. No, I'm waiting for God. God sends, I don't know, something else. No, I'm, I'm waiting for God. Gets the pearly whites. Says, God, I prayed. And God said, yeah. He said, you didn't save me. He said, I sent you a boat. I sent you a plane and whatever else you want to fill in the blank with there. You know, hot air balloon. It's the idea that we sometimes have different expectations and our expectations, because we have them, limits our ability to see God's activity in our world. Another poet said it like this, Henry David Thoreau, we hear and apprehend only what we already half know, the truism, I'll believe it when I see it, might be better stated, I'll see it when I believe it. It's true in our world. It's true. I can quote you stats on the Innocence Project is a good place to go that I think about 60% of overturned cases are literally because of eyewitness testimony that's gone wrong. We really know we believe something and then because we believe it, we see it in the world around us. And I wonder this morning, this is where we're going, I wonder this morning if our expectations around God are limiting our ability to see God's activity in our world. Today we have more fun with Pharisees because if you've been keeping up with us, it's been a chapter in Matthew 12 around how the Pharisees cannot see God working through Jesus. And last week we talked about how not only could they not see it, but they couldn't even apprehend the fact that their reality was wrong, even though God's saying my kingdom is here and near and real and bigger, but they couldn't see it. And today they take it one step farther. And this is the last story we have in our text in this chapter, this two-chapter arc we're going to be in till Easter of the Pharisees trying, trying to see God, but they couldn't see God in Jesus. And it's tragic. It's tragic. And so coming out of that in verse 38, we'll pick it up. It says, then some of the experts of the law, along with some Pharisees, answered him, Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. 
So these conversations happening from the first verse of this chapter up to now about them trying to see who Jesus is and Jesus proving himself, but them not seeing it, a large part because their expectations were flawed to begin with. And our expectations sometimes limit our ability to see God's activity. And so they say to Jesus after that last narrative, when he healed some people and they said, it's of the devil. And Jesus says, my kingdom and my power is way bigger than you understand. They say, fine, then you know what? Give us a sign. Give us a sign that you are who you really are. And we're going to stop down there for just a second and talk about what a sign is. Because a sign is always a miracle, but a miracle is not always a sign. And if you're a math teacher, there's some phrasing about like a rhombus in a square that fits that same, you know, phraseology that I forget because I went to Bible college, learning how to write without two O's and so. Um, but, but a sign is specifically used as a miraculous event that's meaning-filled, that moves, it produces faith in someone that didn't have faith before. You see it throughout the Old Testament. So not all miracles are signed, because some are done without people around or without a great crowd witnessing. Signs are specifically events where God uses the miraculous to move people from no faith to faith, or from minimal faith to more faith, or from doubting faith to uh, a more concrete faith. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament. The idea of an authenticating sign is actually seen over and over in the Old Testament. Moses did it, and uh, you see different judges do it. In 1 Kings 18, uh, you see Ahaz and Hezekiah do it a little later in Isaiah 7. You see this happen, and here, this is what I really want to convey to us. You see it happen because God has no problem proving who he is. The problem with this passage is if we take it out of context, it paints the wrong picture of how God responds to doubt. Because Jesus answers in the next phrase, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given. And and I want to stop down here for two reasons. One is I want to make sure we understand how God deals with with true doubt. And two is I want to make sure we understand that, that God likes to prove himself often because it's a joy for God to be God. So you can go to the Old Testament if you want to. And you can look at the creation narrative. You can, last week we talked a lot about kind of astronomy and how uh, the heavens declare the righteousness of God. And so the reason God created the universe so big is so God could prove that it really is God when we look up and see. There's a new telescope, the Webb telescope, that I am excited to hear how that uh, really proves that our universe is bigger and badder and better than we ever thought it was before so that we can say that's how God is too. God likes to prove himself. In Exodus, the 10 plagues, he doesn't just do one and say, let's go home. He says, I'm going to do 10 of them to show you that I'm better than everybody else. God likes to prove himself. God is a God that proves himself to his people because he's magnificent and resplendent and majestic. In one of the prophet cases, when they're trying to prove Baal, Elijah gets up there and says, hey, I, my God is going to light this altar on fire, but just so you might see his power, we're going to dump a lot of water on it first and watch God work. God likes to prove himself. Let's never believe deep down that God's really hiding from us and we gotta go and peek under the littlest rock to find God because that's not what the narrow gate means if you wanna use New Testament language. God likes to prove himself. It's kind of like when uh, I'm not coaching soccer this spring season because uh, you got another kid in the way and a lot was going on and I'm gonna find a lot more sermon content for you people because that was a big chunk. Um, but I remember during our practices back in the fall and in the spring before that, each, each week we'd play a game at the end, which was basically all these little three-year-olds trying to take the ball from Charlie. Let me tell you something. We did that game because I thought it was good for him, but more I wanted to show them how athletic I was, okay? <laughs> I wanted my daughter to be like, my dad is amazing at soccer, you know? <laughs> 
I wanted to prove to her that I am the best athlete she's ever known. For about seven seconds before I fell on the ground wheezing, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> These little three-year-olds be like, Coach, are you okay? I'm fine, <laughs> you know? God likes to prove himself because he's majestic and he's powerful. And so when he says we're going to ask for a sign there, God has no problem proving who he is. The problem is he sees our motivation and God moves based on our motivation, not necessarily the outward ask in the first place. Let's put this in context. So if you're reading the Bible in the first century world, Matthew just written this, didn't have verses, didn't have chapter headings. You're probably reading more than two, three, five, seven verses at a time. And in the chapter right before this, we see another version of doubt. In 11 verse 1, let me read it to you. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Jesus, this is John the Baptist. He's a big deal. When John heard in in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent his disciples to ask a question. He said, um, are you the one, verse 3, who's to come or should we look for another? So this person, John the Baptist, the cousin to Jesus, is doubting, questioning God. And he's literally saying, Jesus, should I look for somebody else? Are these signs real? Are they not? Prove to me that you are who you say you are. And so if you read this text with a little wider filter, what you see is back-to-back chapters with back-to-back people asking who Jesus is and different, wildly different answers. And I want to spend just a couple seconds and talk about why. If you're John the Baptist, he had a different view of Jesus. Because Jesus was prophesied about. In John's birth, if you look back at the, the, uh, the Luke narrative with his parents, John's birth was pretty miraculous anyway. And so all his life he was told about Jesus, that he was a forerunner for Jesus. If you read in Luke 1 and on, you see that John's birth was about Jesus. And so what happened at this point was they got older and older and older and things got more and more and more exciting. John baptizes Jesus and says, this is the lamb who's come to take away the sins of the world. High water moment. Deity descends on Jesus in that moment. God speaks from the clouds. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Everybody's like, oh my goodness, it's happening, everybody. And then do you know what happens? John gets sent to jail. There was a, a ruler who was a bad, awful man at the time and a Roman ruler over Galilee and, and he did some really awful things with his family. He stole somebody's wife and then he slept with them and he celebrated it and, and, and John spoke out against it and said, this is not good. This is not good. And sometimes if you speak out against power in a corrupt culture, you don't get a happy ending, even if you love Jesus. So he got put in prison. And, and he writes that in Matthew chapter 11. He writes, hey, go see if Jesus is real from a place where he's been in prison for about 18 months at the highest security prison in the first century world. And he thought, man, I thought Jesus was gonna come to release the captives, but I'm still one of them. I thought he was gonna come and set uh, the oppressed free. I'm still oppressed to, to give the blind sight. I know some blind people. So he's really doubting in that place. Like I want to believe in who Jesus is, but I'm having a really, really hard time believing it because I don't see it. The Pharisees in this text are asking a very different question from very different motivations. One is leaning in towards wanting to believe in all the promises of God, and one is leaning out and trying to dissect and disprove who Jesus actually is. Motivation matters when we talk about the things of God. I love what one author put it. He wrote a book called Utopia for Realists, How We Can Build the Ideal World. His name's Ruder Bregman. He says, when reality clashes with our deepest convictions, We'd rather recalibrate reality than amend our worldview, you know? So what's happening with the Pharisees here is their reality is absolutely clashing with their convictions, their expectations, and they're having to choose which one they'll fall in line with. 
The question is, can they see beyond their expectation to God's activity in the world? Because so often what we do is we bend our reality, and reality is just the things that are true in our world. We bend the reality of our world around our convictions or our expectations. I know this because, I'll go back to it, I'm a Cowboys fan. We lost a couple uh, Cowboys jokes last week because we were running a little late, so I want to make sure to bring some back this week for everybody. All right? But I know it because I've already read articles on how the Cowboys are a Super Bowl threat for next year. I have. You guys know, I just, uh, you guys know that there's a, a, a stat that I, I heard on the ticket I was listening a couple weeks ago. I heard a stat that literally if the Cowboys weren't even trying, they had something like an 84% chance of making a title game from 1995 to now, right? So my point is simply, if they just would have let Jesus take the wheel, Jerry Jones, we probably would have gotten the promised land by now, all right? <laughs> we can't do it. And, and, and my point here is, I know it's not going to happen. You know it's not going to happen. The same family's in charge of the team making gobs of money, and that's fine. That's their call. But at the same time, we know the reality is that the Cowboys are the Cowboys. They'll keep disappointing us because it's death, taxes, and the Cowboys' disappointment is the bedrocks of my life, everybody, and Jesus. Um, but a bad training camp in early August, I'm going to start to buy into the hype. This is our year, you know? Zeke Elliott's going to turn back to where he was five years ago. I feel it, you know? (laughs) Emotions lie. (laughs) We will bend our reality around our expectations, not the other way around. And the Pharisees came into this conversation, and they were saying, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to believe in a God who works this way. There's a book named, or by a guy named Bobby Conway. And in his book, he talks about the idea that when we doubt, we need to doubt directionally. That doubt is not just a thing. We can either doubt towards faith or doubt away from faith. And so much of that is dependent upon our expectations, how they've been met or how they haven't been met. And so I want to talk about what causes us to doubt directionally towards God as opposed to away from God. Because the Pharisees asked this question, and in all ways, they were trying to prove Jesus wrong. In no way did they want Jesus to be right. Because time and time again, in this chapter alone, they'd gotten answers and they ignored them. They had said, hey, I got to really want to see you. But what they really wanted to see was the God who looked like them, acted like them, delivered like they were delivered. They really wanted to see the God who they wanted to show up. The problem is the God that showed up wasn't the God they wanted. Hey, look, we have that conversation all the time. When God shows up in our life, do we acknowledge it or do we ignore it? Do we see it or do we deny it because it doesn't fit our expectations of if you were God, what you would do? They aren't trying to deepen their faith. They're trying to disprove and dismantle what God is clearly doing in that place. And those are two very, very different starting points. So Jesus doesn't meet any kind of doubt with with this adulterous generation language. He meets it there with that language because he knew what they were trying to do in the first place. And if we have doubts, which we do all the time, I love what one author says about doubt. He says over and over again that faith is the courage to confidently affirm beliefs, which can be doubted. That's Leslie Newbegin. Because if we have doubt, God meets us there. But what's the motivation behind our doubt? You see a complete difference between John and Matthew 11 and the Pharisees in Matthew 12. So Jesus looks at these men and says, you adulterous generation, how dare you ask for a sign? And if you look at it, the context of the whole passage, they had kind of made their mind up. 
They started to pick a fight in verse 12 at the end of the first narrative in verses, I think, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there, I forget. They, they literally say, we're going to kill this man. And everything after that is trying for them to build a case against killing him. It's like they made their mind up, we're going to kill him. Now we need some reasons behind it, so help us find it, you know? And so they're trying to find a way to do what they've always wanted to do because God didn't show up how they wanted him to. It's this idea that sometimes we have to ask the question, how is God working outside of my expectations? And if we don't ask that question, maybe the God that we're trying to worship is just another version of me. Because they couldn't see it. I love what Tim Keller says about prayer, just to talk about our expectations and God working outside of it. Because if we see God working outside our expectations, if we can understand that, then, then hopefully we can see more of God's activity in the world. Tim Keller says this about unanswered prayer. He says, God always answers your prayers in precisely the way you want to be answered if you knew everything that he knew. I love that idea that when we come to these moments of praying God heal or God do or God be or God save, if we don't see that happen, what it shouldn't do is say that God's not working. What it should do is ask the question, where am I missing God working? Because that's what is happening with the Pharisees. That's what's happening in their world and they can't see it. One of our problems is it's difficult to see God working in our world because we're just a really discontent people because God doesn't act like I want him to all the time. And that's a struggle we're never gonna get out of. We're gonna get to Palm Sunday and talk about it, but this is the idea that God saves fundamentally, but he might not save like you want him to and is he still good? So if we can start a plate from a place of doubt and know that God is good, then we can doubt directionally and say, well, where do I see God working and how is it working in my life and trust in the unknown spaces, trust in the doubt and trust in the, the places where God is silent. It's not what the Pharisees are doing. Uh, let me give you two examples right now of what this looks like. Um, just modern day current. So in the last couple of weeks, there's been some conversation in like a small, probably sliver of the Christian world that I get paid to live in, uh, where um, there's been two events where people kind of have shown what their expectations of God are. And your expectations of God will reveal more about you than you probably want or know to be true. So during the Super Bowl, there were some Jesus ads, everybody. You guys see this? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was the, the he it, it gets us. I think he gets us is the name of it. Man, I saw more people get mad about that. <laughs> So more people get angry about that because they use the wrong word or the wrong phrase or they spent a bunch of money on a Super Bowl ad where they could have fed the poor. I mean, fill in the blank here. And some of those are valid, but my point is simply they come into a space where hundreds of millions of people saw that Jesus might love them and their first response was, yeah, that's not good and that's not okay because it doesn't fit the commercial they'd make. We're a people that are easily discontent. We're people that don't do well at looking outside of our expectation of how God would save. The other one right now is there's a revival going on in Asbury College. Have you guys heard of this at all? Pretty cool deal. Um, I don't know much about it versus what, you know, the Instagram has told me. So I don't know if it's real or not. It's Instagram. But um, I do know that I've read some people I trust and they're pretty excited about it. There's a lot of conversation on, is it real? Is it not? Is it good? Is it not good? And my, my, my point there is simply, man, we can't sit down and soak in God's activity because we're too busy filtering God's activity through my expectation of how God should act. We're going to pray and beg God for a revival, but when it comes, we're going to say, yeah, I don't know if that fits my bill of what revival looks like. And, and this is not to throw the doors open on anything different as of God. That's not true. We have a book that teaches his character. Line up what God's doing with that book. 
We have people around us that can say, no, God doesn't work like this. This is actually really hurtful. Look at those things first. But this is simply to say in those other spaces, when God is moving in the world and clearly good things are happening, maybe we miss it because our expectations aren't lining up with what God's actually doing. Jesus is healing and bringing peace to people and saying, I fulfilled the scriptures. He just healed that dude's hand and made somebody see again. And the Pharisees are saying, that's not how God delivers. This cannot be good. You clearly can't be Jesus. I wonder how the lenses through which we look at the world based on our expectations limit our ability to see God's activity in the world. And so they say to Jesus, I, I need a sign because you haven't done it for me yet. And he looks at him and says, you adulterous generation, what more do I have to do for you than what I've already done in the last 37 verses? So one of the major points today that I think they miss is if you can't see, Jesus says, if you, if you can't see what God has done in the past, then you probably can't see what God's doing right now. So I'd ask the question, based on your expectations, where has God been working in the past? And if you don't have an answer for that, then, then, then maybe you're missing what he's doing in the present. So he says, you adulterous generation, you're evil. You ask for a sign, but no sign will be given, verse 39, except the sign of prophet Jonah. That word adulterous generation carries pretty significant weight from an Old Testament perspective. That's what the prophets called the people of God that ran away from God. It's deeply couched language in Old Testament people that ran from God and ran from wicked people. So it's not just you're cheating on me, it's that this is how Israel has always acted and you're one of them based on the scriptures that you know. And he says, a sign's gonna be given to you, none will except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And just as a small little one-off here, I, I love that Jesus goes back to the sign of Jonah here. So this is the only prophet that Jesus one-to-one one-to-one compares himself to, Jonah. You know who's one of the worst prophets in the Bible? Jonah, (laughs) you know? Jonah, when he got the call from God, ran from God. Jonah said, I'd rather die than be used by God. Jonah said, instead of giving grace, I'd rather die because God gave grace. He didn't even give a message of redemption. His literal message to the Ninevites was five words in 40 days, your, it's five words in the Hebrew, in 40 days, all this stuff's gonna go away and you're gonna die. That's what he said, right? Jesus says, guys, remember Jonah? That's my sign to you because for three days and three nights, and there's some language and discussions here on what the sign of Jonah really is. I think it's the whole life of Jonah that starts with you know, death, resurrection, and redemption. We see it all in that narrative. And so he says, I'm gonna prove to you my sign will be, and he's pointing towards, as he talks more and more about his death, resurrection. I also love, uh, just again, another one-off here. Today is full of them. You guys are so lucky. Um, but, but I love that he goes back to the Old Testament sign of Jonah. The Bible does this, and it gives me great credibility, confidence in the Bible. What the Bible does is it, it picks parts of the Old Testament story to prove that God knew what he was doing back then and now. I mean, it's several examples you can get. There's over 400 prophecies about Jesus that came true. I mean, that would be incredibly difficult to do. Uh, you can go to Genesis 22, one of my favorites. There's a really hard uh, story to interpret as a preacher. It's the one when God says to Abraham, go kill your son. That was difficult I can try to spin how God is good in the middle of that, but that one's really hard. makes us wrestle with some things. Was God being honest there? Was he not? Would God let Abraham go through with it? Would he not? I don't think he would have. But if you take a a broader view there, what God was doing in that moment was foreshadowing Jesus. And most scholars believe literally that Mount Moriah, where Abraham was, where Isaac was uh, was given a goat for, and the name of God there is that God will provide, Jehovah Jireh, where that's literally happening is the same place where Jesus got crucified a few thousand years later, Golgotha. 
So there's this moment when God looks back and says, I knew what I was doing then. It always pointed to Jesus just because you couldn't see it in the moment doesn't mean I wasn't good then, you know? And so he says, look back at the sign of Jonah, this idea that there is death and there's resurrection, that three days he was in and you're gonna look back at this moment in about six months and be like, oh man, if you wanna believe it. And so he says that not only does the sign of Jonah prove it, he keeps going. And he says that... In the middle of that, there's going to be another woman named the Queen of uh, Sheba. If you look at the next phrase there, it says, she came from far and wide to find God in 1 Kings 10 is what the reference is to. She's the Queen of Ethiopia. She heard about Solomon and all the things Solomon was doing. And, and she said, because this seems like an act of God, I'm going to pack up my stuff, travel thousands of miles and find God in this moment. And so Jesus says, these two things condemn you because they had far, far less and they did far, far more. You want a sign. They had way less than you have and they still believed. This queen packed up everything that she had and she said, God is so good and so moving and so active, it's worth pursuing. Jesus is in their midst doing things and they can't see it and celebrate it. I think about uh, a story of a missionary years ago and she brought over uh, someone from the country she was ministering in, a third world country. And she took her to a grocery store here in the States. And uh, the, the woman made it three steps in and just started weeping, you know, because she'd never seen that much abundance. She'd never seen a whole row of toilet paper. You know, pick whichever one you want. She didn't, didn't know that existed. I think that we live in a place where we say, God, show me your good. God, show me your good. God, show me your good. But we're so accustomed to God's goodness, we don't even see it anymore, you know? We forget that it's all around us all the time. I think in this society, in this culture, this affluent lives that we live, whether you're from the right side of the tracks or not in our country, you're still probably the top 5% of people in the world in terms of wealth. I think we sit there and say, God, are you still good? And he probably says, man, what do I have to do to show it to you? You know? Not mitigating anybody's pain. Pain is real for everybody. I am saying, though, that we can see God really clearly in the culture that we live because he has been gracious to us. We live in a place now where if you want to learn about God, you can easily learn about God. Do you you realize that for most of human history, people couldn't read? They didn't have copies of the Bible? Now you can get online and there are thousands of courses you can access. You can make the noon service at the village, God is good, everybody, all right? And fill up your spiritual tank. My point is there's so many resources we have here, so many that that can grow us towards Christ-likeness and godliness. There's so many signs that God has been good to us and we don't see them. We miss them. And Jesus is saying to these people that want a sign, how have you not seen it so far? My question today is simply that, is how have we not seen the goodness of God in our life prior to this moment? If we haven't seen it then, are we missing it now? If we don't see how God has been good, are we missing how God is good right here, right now? And that's a conversation about your expectations and God and how those things mesh together. I think he's looking at these Pharisees and he's saying, you you haven't seen it so far, and it's an indication you never will. Because if you can't see God's activity in the past, you can't see what he's doing in the present. He's looking at these people saying, look back and see it because it's there. And then he ends with this <clears throat> phrasing the story in verse 43. When an unclean spirit goes out into a person, it passes through the waterless place and looks for rest but doesn't find it. Verse 44, it says, I'll return to the home I left. When it returns, it finds the house empty, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits of evil, more evil than itself. 
and they will go in and live there. So the last state the person, the, so the last state of that person is worse than it was before. It will be that way for this evil generation. Couple things. This is not demonology theology. This is not, don't be afraid, demon spirits aren't gonna come into you sevenfold. That's not what he's saying here. What he's doing is he's tying these sections together and he's saying, I did all these signs and you didn't see them and so you can't see past activity of God, you can't see present activity of God and so your future then is bleak. Back in the day, in my high school days, we had this program called Shattered Dreams that came in once, my junior, senior year. Do you guys know what that was? Shattered Dreams was a company and their whole goal was to come in and show high school kids the causality of drinking and driving. Because when you're 18, you think you're invincible, you know? You think nothing's going to take you down. And so this company would come in and do this big theatrical thing, and they'd pick like 10 of your classmates to, to quote-unquote, you know, die. And you'd have a funeral, and it was very, very manipulative and emotional, you know? Um, those guys went to youth camps in the mid-90s with Jesus. And, and <laughs> cheap shot, I'm so sorry. Um, but, but the whole point there was to say, guys, you don't realize it, but what you're doing has consequences beyond just the here and now. Jesus is saying in this moment, you're missing the present work of God because you can't see the past work of God and what you're doing is gonna have implications on the future work of God and it's serious. So that, that text can be interpreted a couple different ways. First, waterless places, just to answer some questions. Uh, there was a belief in the Jewish culture that demons uh, didn't like desert places, so they'd find places you know, with some kind of water and he's using colloquialisms there to, to show them what he means. Two, he's literally speaking to that generation. It says so in verse 45. And what he means by that is, hey, I'm here now. I'm going to leave. And if you don't invest in me, if you don't trust me, if you don't pick up on what I'm doing, then you're going to be in a far worse place if you just want the signs and the signals, but you don't trust in who I am and what I'm doing. Big picture in my kingdom. And so he's saying, if you don't buy in now, what's coming on the other end is worse than it is now. Do you know why I think an application we can make? Because, Because life without God only grows our discontentment. Because sin only leads in one direction, that's destruction. And so the idea of one demon leaving and seven coming back, I don't think it's his way of saying, watch out, the devil's going to overtake you. It's not what he's saying here. I think he's making an allegory to the fact that, hey, sin only knows one train track that you run down, and it's to a place of hardship and destruction and damnation. Don't let it get there. That's why it says in James 1, when it talks about the demonic, when it talks about the sinful nature, when it talks about the forces of evil, it says each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Then when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. I think what he's saying to this generation is, you've missed me working in the past, you can't see me working right now, and you won't see me in the future, and let me tell you what a life without Jesus looks like. It only goes one way. He says that I've come to give life, but the devil's come to steal, kill, and destroy. Big picture. One of my favorite ways to talk about the nature of sin like this is, there's so many animal stories that I like to use here. A friend of mine texted me a couple months ago, and said, I want to get a pet bear. <laughs> so I just Googled pet bear attacks on their owners and sent them like seven articles. Uh, there's a folklore that I heard around the Flower Mound area years and years ago. I think snakes are part of the fall in the garden and I uh, hate them. Um, and there's a story that went around this area about 10 years ago as a youth pastor and somebody told it to me of this person had a, a pet python. Have you heard the story? then slept with their pet python, or the pet python would get out of the cage. And anyway, long story short, uh, the, the guy took his pet python that he had since he was a kid to the vet. And uh, he said, hey, my pet's doing a really weird thing. Like, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and he'll be laying next to me, you know, um, what's going on? And the vet said, well, is he eating? No, he hasn't eaten in a couple days. And the vet looked at the guy and said, right now, get rid of that python, right now. Really seriously. 
And, and the guy said, well, why? It's my pet. I love this pet. You know, I've known it for a long time. I forget the fact that snakes are terrible things and they hurt people. And the vet said, he's sizing you up to see when he can eat you. Get rid of the python. There's a story in uh, Australia around a few years ago when I did a sermon. And it's about this guy that had a pet hippo that he had a name for. And then he died because the hippo did what hippos do, which is killed him. You know, hippos are responsible for more deaths in Africa than any other animal outside of the mosquito. But this guy was like, this hippo loves me. I played hungry, hungry hippo. I just give him a little pat on the butt. He smiles, you know? We do that with sin. We forget that even small sins lead to big consequences. We forget that when God says live a certain way, it's not just because he wants to see if we love us, it's because he does love us and he wants us to flourish. And so when Jesus says, you've missed how I've worked and you miss how I'm working, and if you don't do that, let me tell you where this is going, a bad, bad place for you. It's a term of endearment to a people that don't trust him and won't trust him and are trying to kill him. And so I think what our text points to over and over and over again is a simple truth that if you can't see what God has done, you will miss what God is doing. You'll miss what it'll do to you if you miss it, you know? And so as we talk about what this means, I think pretty simple kind of marching orders for us today is go to lunch with somebody after this and say, what has God done in my life? And if your answer is, I can't see it, find somebody who knows you who can. Find somebody who loves Jesus. It's called doubting directly towards faith, you know? I'm going to surround myself when I question the goodness of God with others that know the goodness of God. So when I say, how have you seen God be good? They can say, look at all that God has done in this space and in this place. Look at how God has been good to you if you can't see it. Look in the middle of whatever chaos you're going through if you don't see the activity of God that has really been working. And when you see how God has worked in the past, you will start to see how God is working in the present. You will start to believe it and then you'll start to see it. It's this idea that we miss God's activity because we forget what he's done. So let's be a people that don't forget what he's done. A buddy of mine, I've used this story a few times. Every New Year's Eve, he stays home and he reads back through his yearly journal. He opens a good bottle of wine and he circles where he's seen God work that he's forgotten about. I love that. I've never done it, but I love that. It's on my list of things to do one day. I think that we need to be more of a people that look back and see the goodness of God, not just because we need to give him credit, not just because we need to worship him, not just because it's good for you, it is, but because when we see what God's done in the past and rightly ascribe it to God that sometimes is outside of our expectations, guess what? We will more clearly see what God's doing right here and right now, and I need that. We need that. Because it's too easy to say God's not doing anything or this thing over here is done the wrong way. It's too easy to be critical. We need to be a people that more celebrate what God is doing because we've seen what he's done in our past. I like to think of it as like a one day <laughs> when my kids grow up, when they're 18, 19, 20, 35, when they grow up, they're gonna look back and they're gonna be like, you know what I realize? how many times my parents sacrificed for me and actually loved me that I didn't get. So my daughter wants all these things for Christmas and she got it, but you don't get her one thing and she cries and cries and cries and she, she questions whether we love her at all because we didn't get her the right Barbie camper or something, you know? Um, but I remember this moment when I had my kids, probably in the third sleepless night and the 17th diaper in about 12 minutes and because uh, they sometimes they wait, they wait until you're trying to change their diaper and then they show off for you. That's another conversation. Um, but you realize all that your parents gave up for you. You look back and you start to see all the places that God acted when you start looking for it and see, oh my gosh, he really does care for me. 
<laughs> he really does love me. He really, does, he really is active in my world and in my life. And the more we see what God has done in the past, the more excited and celebratory we can be on what God is doing now. And this is where that leads every time. It leads to an increased dependence upon God's activity in our world and an independent culture. The more I see that God is integral to my life, to this church, to my wife, to my kids, to all the good things that I have now, as the scripture would say, the more I realize that I need God every step of the way from here on out. It fights the independence of our culture and makes us rely on the dependence of God's activity in our world. And then we can see it and celebrate it as a people. Then we can get together and say, do you know what God's doing in my life? Let me show you. And it starts with how we see what we've done. Might we be that community in a world that seemingly doesn't acknowledge it or looks the other way or maybe has, God, has expectations of God that aren't realistic or maybe aren't actually what God is doing? Might we be a people that as we look at what God has done, we see and celebrate what he's doing and so people might see his goodness, that we need him, and that he's good. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for your activity in our world. Uh, I'm thankful for what you have done in this church over the last five years. We're going to have a lead meeting and talk about it in a sec. I'm thankful that you have been consistently active and good. I'm thankful that you like to show off. I'm thankful that you're worthy of worship. I, I pray, I pray that, that we are a church that takes time to look behind us so that we can see what God's doing in front of us. I pray that as a church, we can be a people that looks behind us, we can celebrate what God is doing right here and right now. And I pray that that increases our awareness of our need for God. That increases our awareness of the goodness of God. So that we don't say, God, where's our sign? But we say, God, you are so incredibly good. We have signs all around us. Might we be those followers of Jesus. Pray these things in his name. Amen.